You're listening to WXOXLP Louisville, City State Radio. This is the show where we talk about cities, uh, all the stuff about cities. And uh, I hope you enjoyed our brand spanking fresh new theme song um, coming right at you from The Smacks, Kentucky's own The Smacks. And uh, we got to give a big shout out to, to the Smacks for, let, for letting us uh, use this song. Uh, one of the station's amazing DJs, Brian Manley, uh, with the Dripless Turmoil show Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, he was one of the members of the Smacks, the, the, the defunct Smacks. I don't know. You never know. Maybe the Smacks will, will, will bust back with, with more of that killer um, garage sound that they brought to the region um back back in the day gosh was that the 90s was it the 90s that was a long time ago <laughs> maybe early 2000s anyway what's going on guys my name is pat smith got my illustrious co-hosts coming in from um their respective home studios how are you today good sirs good living large in the burbs living large <laughs> all right uh, it's good man uh in in belknap belknap uh it's warm outside. Too, too really warm. too warm. Some uh, might say. What are we talking about? Eighty-one <laughs> degrees here into this what second week of spring? Already into the eighties in the spring. I, I got my the, the the wife's stopping me, but you know my my hand is getting ever closer to the air conditioner button on on the <laughs> nest. Looking at that nest. For, for, you know, she slaps it away. I get that hand, you know, gets within a couple feet of the nest. I get a, I get a nasty smack. And, uh, I, it's, I'm pretty, I'm going to break through soon because, I mean, 81, second week of spring. I mean, we, we got two and a half months of spring left and we're already into the 80s. I don't know. I'm not liking that, but I know a lot of folks, um, love, love their warm weather. Look at this extended forecast, 70s and 80s. Just uh, oh, let's say coming into some high 60s. I'll be a little happier when we come. High 60s. Uh, that seems warm for spring. I don't know. What are you guys enjoying this? What, what's up? I like the warm weather to a certain degree. I mean, you got to let your body acclimate to the temperature change before you kick in the AC. You're going to be oh, in man. trouble. I'm ready for the AC. <laughs> I just want to get it frigidly cold in here. I, it's, I'm, I'm a cold weather person. I, I, this is my. It's my downtime. This is like, you know, a lot of people get that seasonal affective disorder. You know, I get that when, when summer comes on. It's just, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be just depressed down in the cold basement, just waiting for some cold, cold winds, some snowflakes, some leaves <laughs> to fall off trees. Wow. <laughs> I, I'm ready for, I'm ready for the warm. I like it warm. I spent, I spent enough of my life in a warm kitchen. Feels good when I go out. I mean, you know, I, I'm one of those guys who will wear jeans all through the summer and never put shorts on. So, oh yeah, I don't. Shorts is we don't even. <laughs> I don't want to alienate anybody, but we don't need to get into the shorts debate because I'm gonna make a lot of people unhappy with my anti-shorts takes. Um, but you know, that's just that, that's the, for a different day. Maybe that's for a different show even. But. Uh, <laughs> We got we got some just some some odds and ends to to take care of here in this first segment. Um, so much happening uh, with cities, with urban news across the nation, um, and as always here in our beautiful 
um, historic hometown of Louisville. One thing I wanted to revisit since we talked about it a, a couple times in the last few weeks, it looks like there's a, a little movement. I mean, nothing's resolved, but you know, we, we talked with a uh, friend of show, uh, Chris Glasser, uh, executive director of Streets for People, not too long ago, I think two weeks ago, about the situation with um, whether or not we're going to keep these roads closed in some of our big, popular, gorgeous Olmstead parks, uh, Cherokee Park in the Highlands, and uh, Iroquois Park being chief among those. And it looks like there was a little bit of uh, news in, in, in various uh, local media uh, today. Uh, I, guess, I guess semi-recently, uh, a, a, an additional survey past the one that was about um, Cherokee Park's scenic loop closures uh, that we talked about a couple weeks ago. I guess there was another survey. Um, some results were, were um, released fairly recently um, about the Iroquois uh, Park closures and how people felt about that. Um, and, and I had not looked as much at the survey uh, about Iroquois Park, but, you know, it had some, had less respondents. That, that Cherokee Park survey had about 7,000 respondents, which is just, it's just big for this kind of informal survey monkey um, kind of a thing where just, you know, everyday citizens are seeing a link on social media or in some kind of email newsletter or whatever, and they're deciding to fill it out. You know, most surveys like that don't, don't get that kind of a response, which just, you know, obviously people are passionate about their, their local parks and, and want to chime in on, on these kinds of big changes. And, and, and if, if, if you weren't aware or you're not from Louisville or you missed it somehow, I mean, I guess about a year ago, uh, the mayor decided to close the roads to cars in these two big Olmstead parks to the delight of many, many people. And that is reflected, you know, in these surveys. So, you know, we, we looked at the Iroquois Park one, and I think just a good number, like two-thirds of the people, sorry, the Cherokee Park one, when we looked at that one, at least two-thirds of people were like, yeah, keep them closed forever. I don't know that they asked the questions in the exact same way for the Iroquois Park survey, but I guess they asked a question that said, do you feel safer or this main road, Rundle Road, that runs through Iroquois Park, do you feel safer with it being closed? And then, again, almost two-thirds of people say that they do, you know, feel safer with that being closed. So despite some of the, I guess, varying things that are coming out in local media or that you see on, you know, next door social or whether you see on Twitter is, I feel like some people are like, well, it's, uh, it's pretty divided and people are, you know, people are on both sides here and people feel passionately, but it does, to me, you know, just based on these two, you know, sort of convenience sample surveys alone, that the the big, big majority of people are liking these roads being closed. Now, that said, we do have some for very real accessibility issues for how people um, that have more limited mobility get into the park. And um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, where we come out on that, because, I mean, we obviously do need to. Uh, respect people's accessibility issues and help them access the park. But I mean, I think as the director of public works said, and in, in, I think in the Courier Journal today, I mean, technically all the city needs to do is ensure that people can get up to the borders of the park and the interest of the park. And then, you know, that's the city's done its job. Of course, that's probably not good enough. Um, that's why a lot of people would like to see these roads reopened and have cars drive in. So at the end of the day, I guess it's a story of, People keep saying it, been saying it for, I guess, almost a month now. Some kind of compromise is going to need to happen here at um, Cherokee and Iroquois Parks in terms of the car situation. As much as people are loving 
um, the, the no the no cars in, in the parks. Based on the new stuff, um, just sort of the, the, the new bubbling up of this, you guys have any, any thoughts on this or where it's going? I know they say they're weeks, maybe a month or so away from making a final decision on whatever these compromises might be. But given that this is back in the news today, I'm just curious what you guys thought. I mean, I don't think that much has changed so far, at least from what I, my understanding was last couple of weeks. But I did think it was interesting. Uh, Derek Gowan from Metro Public Works was in this article on the Courier Journal. And he was, you know, people were saying, well, could we do some traffic calming or what other things could we do if we didn't close down the streets? And one of them was, you know, maybe having one-way traffic running around so that it was the loop. I mean, the one in Cherokee is one way already, but I guess the Iroquois, you can go two ways. So yeah. they were like, what if we just made it one way? And, you know, his comment was that a shift from two lanes for cars to one-way traffic would encourage drivers to speed through the park on streets where pedestrians walk, which I guess I hadn't thought about that. But one reason why I hate one-way streets so much is because it makes people feel a lot more. Their ability to drive faster is increased because there's not another car coming at them it might be people or bicycles but they're not as worried so like i guess that makes sense i'm just used to driving through cherokee park in the one way and it works well because you have two lanes but one lane is just dedicated to cyclists and walkers and one is just for vehicles yeah i mean my my opinion is be bold do it Make it make it only pedestrian and bike, and um, you know ninety. Let the other ninety nine point eight nine percent of you know metro parks and stuff that are accessible by car, um, you know service. The thing, the fact is, is the majority of these parks are accessible by car. We're talking about one little area. So let one little area be pedestrian and bike um, accessible only. And if you and if you want to consider, I think one of you guys threw out in a text, like if you did some kind of a small shuttle, mm -hmm. you know, on certain days, like the weekends or something, of course, that would have to be funded. But, um, you know, let it be pedestrian and bike access yeah. only yeah. let's have one place for that i saw um one interesting um sort of thought yesterday i guess as this new iroquois um survey was making the rounds i, I think it was from um uh, can, can we call rob monsma a, a friend of the show yet he's not been on the show yet we hope to remedy that I, I don't know i don't know what what rob monsma's status is with with our show but you know <laughs> we'll, we'll figure that out later but he had a great tweet um Yesterday, just like the only vehicles that could be that should be allowed in, you know, some kind of TARC bus, TARC shuttle, and and, and let that be it, you know, like yeah. and maybe I don't know that he, if he was thinking this or if he mentioned it or someone else did, but yeah, what you were just saying about the the, the shuttle idea, I love that. Of course, that's going to cost money. That's going to take you know a budget. Gosh, you know whatever of uh, you know several staff people are or to to run that program or whether that's, you know, some kind of new money to TARC to, to run a kind of a through the parks program. But I mean, I like that as a compromise because then you've got 
you know, some ability for people to be able to be driven in to key points in either of these two massive parks um, without having to have just people rolling through um, on their own volition. Because I think like an interesting thing on, on definitely looking at the, at this new Iroquois park survey is um, the, the commute, like, like, like a lot of people are using these roads at when they're stressed in the morning in the afternoon trying to get to or from work. So 20% of these 3,000 people that took the Iroquois Park uh, survey, and I guess they're talking about this Rundle Road, you know, stretch through Iroquois Park, 20% of people are saying that their commute has been increased. So, I mean, just, that's, that's not good to have an Olmstead Park known for beautiful scenery, walking, biking, children playing, to be somebody's morning commute road. You know, like let's let, let's just let's just forget that expectation. Like it's th- th- like this beautiful community amenity. There should not be an expectation that you get to like zip through at eight a.m. Um, well in excess of the speed limit because you know you made a bad decision the night before and couldn't get up on time. Like <laughs> it's <laughs> it's I don't know. To me, I mean th- these are these are assets. There's the whole county is set up to be driven around in. So, I mean, some of these arguments I get where there's people that are like, well, you know, I just want to go someplace that's pretty and drive. You got everything to go that's pretty to go drive. Yeah. This is like one tiny place where, you know, people could go and enjoy um, an atmosphere um, w- without having to be in proximity uh, to, to these, you know, dangerous machines. And again, though, I don't want to like undercut the, I think that there does need to be some kind of compromise around accessibility. I, I just think that the, the, the story, you know, maybe needs to be amplified that people like having these parks car free, but I don't know. I don't know if you guys had anything, you, anything else that we, we missed on that or we can move on if, if, if not. I think the shuttle idea, I mean, you're talking about how it needs to be paid for and all that, which I mean, I, I would assume that, that would be a pretty easy fundraising thing huh, to yeah, do. Totally. Particularly, I mean, like with Cherokee Park, with so many people, like 7,000 some people responded, and all the people that live nearby, like that enjoy it being closed. Like if you wanted to have a shuttle go through, I'm sure that the money could be raised to make that happen. People or even, get- yeah, a shuttle or even just like, um, if you think about mobility issues, because that's what I'm, I'm assuming we're talking about, right? Whether it's um, where you, whether you're, you have a physical handicap that doesn't allow you to, you know, walk up to say Hogan's Fountain, or um, or you're older, right? You know, it's either a shuttle or even, you know, there's all kinds of little sort of electric mobility type of personal vehicles right that you could essentially set up and basically if you're beyond a certain age and you have mobility issues you check one out for the day what about like a thirsty peddler that just kind of keeps going around yeah (laughs) i like it (laughs) hop on the thirsty peddler you'd have you're talking about that no i don't like that i don't like that i don't oh man that might oh, just become a little too obnoxious. <laughs> speaking, of, speaking of thirsts um, and, and hungers, I, I saw an interesting thing I hadn't really thought about today. You know, it's been, 
I, I definitely, you know, like I think both of you guys did, paid my dues um, in the 1990s economy um, by working in restaurants. Uh, that's how I, I got rent happening. That's how I put clothes on my back and uh, how I, you know, paid all the bills that you got to pay as a, a young person. But looking at this, um, some of the stories from around the web, and I know we, we had, I think, at least one of these stories locally, but I'm seeing them, you know, coming out of other cities. Areas are facing these, like, uh, as restaurants, as, as restaurants are, like, sort of coming back and opening as all of the vaccines roll out, people are getting the second dose, people are getting through that, still wearing the masks, whatever, but ready to go to a patio, uh, ready to go to a, an eatery, you know, that's well ventilated, like, they can't find staff like restaurants are having this enormous staffing crisis. And it's like, it's in somebody on Twitter I saw today, I think it was, uh, uh, at luxury Jeff had this really funny, like little story, like, of a, a, the, like, it's like in three parts, three pictures. The first picture is like, good morning. Here's our new operating hours. We're so excited to be back. Come enjoy our food. And then the second one's like, be advised wait times are 30 minutes or more as we are, you know, experiencing these huge staffing problems. And then the third picture, like a couple hours later is we are closing today. We, we, <laughs> we apologize and we'll be in touch when we reopen. I mean, this is terrible. Like all these places have been shopping at the bit, um, to reopen. And it's like, um, it, it's, we, we've run up against this, this situation where they can't find the workers. I guess, you know, you've got people that don't want to come back into a business that's sort of like being around people, don't want to work in close proximity to people. You've got people that a year ago, nine months ago, were like, I got to I gotta jump out of this industry because it's in super bad shape. Um, and then and they found something else and they moved on. So I, I don't know. Like, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen any of this stuff or had any thoughts on the restaurant staffing situation. I mean, we know how important restaurants are to our cities and our street scenes. Just curious what you guys thought. Yeah, and so there's just the culture and identity of cities, particularly Louisville. But uh, yeah, the uh, the other problem is that, you know, at least in the Courier Journal, I think it was Courier Journal article I was reading about this, that there's also the problem that um, it's you, you get paid almost as much or about the same to stay at home right now on unemployment. Like, they're bad. Like I've heard restaurateurs talk about how it's why would you come in and work when you could keep drawing on a an unemployment check? Like it's there's not an incentive to come into work. You know, I mean that's not for everybody necessarily, but that's like that's working against them. But the other thing is that a lot of people like who worked in the restaurant industry thought it I mean I thought it was always going to be this kind of place that you could always go and get a job yeah, and like yeah. be able to do something that you know if I got sick of what I was doing I could go work in a restaurant for a while but that's totally. not the case and uh a lot of people who moved on and found other jobs like they found out like oh I get this job that I have at the bank like I get health insurance and stuff mm -hmm. and like maybe it pays about the same, but like there's all these other benefits that come along with it that they didn't get yeah. before. And like the stability, at least perceived stability of the job is there. Totally. Yeah. I, but I think also how many people are going 
necessarily from like restaurant to bank, right? Well, or something. Bank teller. I, I'm not saying that they're I, like. No, I understand. Doing. I understand. But I think if you're a, I think there are a couple things going on. One, a lot of people who work in restaurants are probably, you know, in that sort of 40s down to 20s kind of mm. range. I mean, I'm mm. not saying that's all, but there's probably a bulk of those folks are in that range. And we haven't, you know, a lot of states haven't made um, vaccinations accessible to those folks yet. I think that's happening now, and I think that'll help. I think you're right on the the unemployment, and of course, the solution there is that we have to raise the unemployment. Uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> we have to raise the uh, minimum wage. The wage, right? That's it. Because that's it. Because that's, I mean, you want to talk about lifting people out of poverty, raise the minimum wage. Um, that's going to help. That's and, and that's a comment somebody made. Um, I, I'm not sure where they were coming from, and, and they, it was probably a little bit tongue-in-cheek, like a lot of things on Twitter are. But, you know, in response to one of these articles from some city about the, the restaurant staffing shortage, somebody made the comment, have you thought about paying people more? Um, but again, I mean, a lot of these businesses are, you know, shoestring family owned, very tenuous bottom line. But I mean, again, you know, this is an important sort of part of the fabric of our cities. And, you know, this is a, a place where maybe capitalism doesn't do so well in terms of making sure that we pay people that do this work that we value quite a lot. Um, and definitely in a city like Louisville that, you know, rests a lot of um, its eggs in the basket of tourism and touting its access to fresh farm fresh, healthy foods and how those get to the restaurants. I mean, you know, we can't expect people to do that work uh, for, for, for bad pay. Um, and that's a conversation that we definitely need to have. This is City State Radio right here on WXOXLP Louisville talking about city stuff. Whoa, big, big news. Biden's infrastructure plan. When you're talking about cities, you got to be talking about infrastructure and Boy, did they drop a proposal this, <laughs> this hey, week. <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can I, can I just add, you know, I, I'm always jumping back. Can I just add some piece to our restaurant conversation real fast? Oh, that's uh, set up. Man, what a beautiful setup. Just destroyed. Go I'm ahead. sorry. In, I know. I was, I was going to try and do this before you did that. Stick it in. Um. I was just going to say there are a lot of restaurants that are paying uh, a reasonable wage and, and they are paying that $15 or more. I think we as a sort of a society have to be willing to pay for our food. Right. Oh yeah. Um, So we have to be, if we're, I think sometimes we, we want to go out and eat every night of the week. Right. Yeah. And or eat lunch out every single day. And I think Mm -hmm. if we, if we change the way we, we think and we're willing to pay for a meal, that meal comes with paying for good ingredients and, you know, yeah, yeah. employees living, getting paid a living wage and all that stuff. So totally, I didn't want to like, no, but you're, you're dead on, on the they're just paying for it. I mean, yeah. there's been, I think a million, you know, studies or, you know, quotes or analyses where, you know, like wherever you are, I, I guess Europe, you know, think about, not the best food in the world, but a lot of these major big corporate fast food places, you pay like 20 cents more for the burger, 30 cents more for the burger. That lets everybody get like a better wage and like benefits. 
with like that small and what is that like what is a burger four dollars you know like like the good burger like not, not the 99 cent burger even if it is the 99 cent burger just take that percentage down to that burger so it's seven cents more for the 99 cent one whatever like you have that kind of a, a tiny fractional increase on the food and then all the people that are working there are happier they've got better benefits they got more money in their pocket they can support their family better they can try to figure out a better housing opportunity for for really just like a fraction of, of the cost of the burger it's not like you're paying two dollars more for the burger that's what right. gets me and that's like i think that's where we could do better and can do better and, and have to do better um, that's why the workers. minimum wage needs to be raised because it's yeah. not fair you do have restaurants that are paying a good living wage or a living wage and the ones that aren't and like you know the consumer comes in is like oh that burger costs 15 dollars as opposed to like seven somewhere else or whatever and you know they don't understand you know what all goes into why they're paying more so they'll go somewhere else and then the burden is on the you know restaurant that's paying better wages to find some way to keep people to keep coming through the door whereas if Ray, make it everybody, then it, it it levels the playing field a little bit. Absolutely. All right. I'm sorry, man. Infrastructure. <laughs> infrastructure. Are you guys sure you want to talk about infrastructure? Is, <laughs> you sure? Okay. Let's dive in. Two trillion coming from Uncle Joe um, down the pike. This is proposed, you know, as a planner, like, as someone trained in planning, as someone that's reads about planning, as someone that's involved in plan creations for organizations, um, when I see the word proposal, that to me says big chance this isn't going to happen. <laughs> but, but, you know, I mean, this is a big thing. It's coming from an early in the term of a new president. Um uh, so it will be interesting to see what bits of this big, big infrastructure proposal happen. And it's across the board. Some of the big, like so, so many bits in here from transportation, water, internet, electric, home, schools, buildings, workforce, innovation, whatever innovation means. Um, the biggest ticket item on here is $400 billion, uh, for home or community-based care for elderly and people with disabilities. Now, that's pretty interesting. Like um, a, a good chunk of this money. Um, looking at sort of uh, communities for um, our very aging populace. You look at the next chunk down, $213 billion for affordable housing. That's huge. Maybe, I mean, I know we've talked about it many times on the show in the past, but like in this capitalist system, it there's like no incentive for for-profit developers to build apartment buildings in a lot of cities across this nation. So yeah. I don't know what they're thinking. But maybe some of this money can go for just people to get subsidized apartment buildings. I don't know. Patrick, yeah. are you going to say something? I was just going to say uh, there's no incentive, and in we put it – You know, I, I'm not here to defend the developer, right? But yeah. we put it on the developer a lot of times to um, – we're asking the developers to do the job that really I think our federal government should be doing. Right. So anyway, I'm excited to see what happens. I do think there's a bit of a, I think we have, and I'm not, I don't feel, I'm not Pollyannish about it. I mean, I 
But I do think we have turned a corner. I think we would like went from sort of crazy maniacs um, to like, okay, we have to get this under control. And I think COVID has certainly played a big role, like in our understanding of how government can um, protect and help and, you know, provide safety and all those things. So anyway. The third provision in the proposal down elderly care, affordable housing, um, coming in at $213 billion. The next one at $174 billion, electric vehicle investments. This this one to I mean, me is fraud. What, what are you guys thinking? I mean, when I was driving across the country from Denver back to Louisville, uh, there's a little town, I think it's Salina, Kansas, that's along the way. And we stayed at a hotel there, and they had six uh, electric car charging stations there. And I thought about that when I was looking at it, and I was like, there were, there were two, actually, two or three cars that were charging. And this was in the middle of the week in, like, just a random time of the year. And this was, I don't know, maybe four months ago. And I thought about that, and I was like, we need to have these, like, everywhere if we're going to electrify all of the cars. Yeah. You can't. I mean, you can't just replace gas stations with these. These need to be in a lot of different places and think differently about like where they need to go. Hotels and things like that are a great example. And I think that it's really smart. If we want to be a leader in electrifying like vehicle transportation, we have to be spending money like this to make that happen. And just on infrastructure, it's not... I don't I don't I didn't dig into that part of the of the budget of what that means but I'm assuming a lot of that has to do with just creating charging stations and doing all that kind of stuff. Probably incentives yeah. for people to get into new electric vehicles at a, yeah. a household level I'm thinking. Here's where I am a little bit not on board with this the electric vehicles thing is or this kind of an investment in it is is because I don't see this solving the problems that people hope for this to solve in some respects. We've talked about this before in the past, but you know, in a lot of cities, when we plug in the vehicle to the charging station, that charging station is running off electricity that's coal powered, right? Like so, like that. It's it's still fossil fuel yeah. connected. You know, the, the other the, thing about it too is like yeah. there was a great tweet. The other day that like showed a big picture of suburban sprawl and the kind of stretching out of of people, you know, out in the landscape, dragging city services out there, tearing up greenfields for these new houses. Electric vehicles just kind of help sprawl keep going. They don't help yeah. redensify the city. They don't help infill. They back up a culture of auto domination it's just a little bit different and a little bit less pollution because it's, it's uh, I know you're raising the point source thing, Patrick Henry, get in there with a the point source thing. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, uh, I think you're right. Uh, and okay, okay. you know, I think that the carbon footprint of a new electric vehicle is still has a big carbon footprint, right? Yeah, what all yeah. it took to create the battery, to ship it back and forth, to do all the stuff. And, um, you know, I was talking to a friend of mine yesterday who's got a new a new electric vehicle and he's just leasing like he's like, I'm fine with every three years leasing a new car. I'm like, dude, that's 
more that probably has a, car, a larger carbon footprint than if yeah. you just bought a gas vehicle totally. and totally. kept it for 20 years. Totally. totally. Um, so, I mean, we need to think of all those things. And ultimately, yeah. we're not going to EV our way out of this problem. EVs are letting people like keep this fantasy that you can live like an hour away from your job and and drive, you know, into town and back every day. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of problems with that. And I think that, are people going to be doing that though. Yeah. Are people going to be driving back point. and forth to like an hour when they could like work from home, you know, not everybody can, but the people who yeah. live in the suburbs, white collar people that are like driving to downtowns. I mean, point. it's not good for downtown <laughs> yeah. because downtowns are going to die, but like, well, and I don't think they're all going to die. And I do think it's really uh-huh. in somewhere in the it's really a yes and right. Yes, yeah, we yeah, should yeah. invest in EVs because that is a port, an important part of it. But we also still have to invest in the in the mass transit. Totally. Oh, okay. and, and on that tip, that's down the list a little bit. And the next one past electric vehicles in terms of billions is roads and bridges. And Patrick Puma shared with us a great article about a particular there that 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 Joe himself mentioned. Urban renewal and like highways running through, you know, in a lot of cases when they would cut through cities would go through uh, neighborhoods, uh, black residents and, and poorer neighborhoods. And in an attempt to be more equitable and thinking about this is actually like you we've destroyed these neighborhoods with interstates that have gone through there and the interstates are 50 years old or so and they're reaching the end of their usefulness where they will need to be replaced with something so maybe we should tear them down and rebuild the neighborhoods that we destroyed which is a pretty amazing concept that's been around for a little while but to hear people as high up as the president talking about it is uh, pretty amazing. Absolutely amazing. And, you know, you said the idea has been around for a while. There's that kind of really interesting report um, from Congress for New Urbanism called Freeways Without Futures, where uh, that organization kind of documents people that have actually been successful in interstate highway, elevated highway removals out of their um, urban areas, people that are thinking about it. Uh, people that are hoping for it, they have a really great collection of those in that um, Freeways Without Futures uh, document. I um, I can't remember. I've, I've been to New Orleans, um, gosh, at least five or six times in my life. I, I don't remember. It's been a while. God, I don't. Man, I don't. I've been once post Katrina, but I don't have a clear picture of uh, Claiborne and uh, in, in this kind of elevated situation here. But I, I, I did love the show Treme on HBO. Mm-hmm. I know it's, it's, it's different than actually living in a neighborhood <laughs> or being from a city. Uh, but, you know, David Simon, really one of the top people for sort of introducing place into his um, film and, and television work. And, you know, Treme, the, the Claiborne Avenue was the, like, black Main Street of, of Treme. And at some point, I guess, 1969... I, the state, the Fed, whatever, came in with the six-lane elevated Interstate 10 construction onto Claiborne Lane and totally destroyed this business district, displaced hundreds and hundreds of people, tore out like what was this, this like storied, almost legendary uh, 
just stretch of old oak trees that ran through this neighborhood. I mean, this sounds like it was an incredible commercial district um, that I, to me, that decision is insane. Like to be like, we have a fully functional, totally banging, economically successful, beautifully landscaped, gorgeous commercial district. Hey, let's drop an elevated highway on top of it and just destroy it all. What what is that? That's that's some really crazy, crazy thinking right there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, that's happened all over the country with redlining and, and uh, urban renewal, just destroying neighborhoods and things like that. I mean, uh, I think that the, uh, the opportunity here, you know, I think it probably will take a lot more money than what they've put towards it right now, but to, to, to take these highways down and rebuild them. Cause I mean, some of the most storied ones where highways have been torn down and turned into parkways or boulevards or whatever, a lot of those started because, you know, in San Francisco, the Embarcadero, there was a, an earthquake that yeah. caused the build, yeah. caused it to collapse, which made them have to do something about it <laughs> yeah. immediately. Liability. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we even in Louisville, we had I-64 that runs along the Ohio River waterfront. There was a push for a long time for the 8664, maybe like 10, 15 years ago, to tear that down. And that didn't end up happening, which is unfortunate. But that one, that one does, that one, it cuts off the city and it really doesn't make any sense why we have a, an interstate there. But that one isn't necessarily cutting through neighborhoods like, say, I 65. Yeah. Like I've been thinking about different places where that's happening. And they were talking about in this one article about like Syracuse interstate 81. It's an elevated highway that ran through a predominantly black uh, neighborhood in the South side. And this is like, they're, they're trying to get all of their politicians and everybody on the same page and be like, look, there's funding and like, there's an opportunity and we really want to do this. Like let's, you know, have a shovel-ready project that we can start doing this. And I hope that a lot of places around the country have been working on this to try and think about where where they can fix neighborhoods. I don't know that anything like that could happen in Louisville. I mean, 65, uh, which is the one that really cuts through our a lot of our neighborhoods through downtown and through, you know, Smoketown, Shelby Park, um, parts of old Louisville, like I, I just don't see that going away because of the logistics hub that we've become. But I, I don't know. I, I really hope that other cities. I would hope that we could do it here, even if it's taking like we've talked about many times. Even if it's taking out some of the ramps to the expressways that drop down into like neighborhoods of color where. It's destroying the fabric and people are, I mean, we've talked about like accidents and all the things that happen there related to these on and off ramps to the expressway. Even fixing those in Louisville would be great. Totally. And a couple of things on what you were just saying about just shutting down some of the ramps. I I mean, I've heard, you know, to the grapevine that there's there's various sort of community organizations, um, neighborhood organizations 
that are sort of talking with the state transportation cabinet about the possibility um, of, of ramp closures in some of these really, you know, quite residential old historic neighborhoods of the city. Because, I mean, you know, where these ramps, these ramps basically turn these streets into an extension of the off-ramp or the on-ramp. Um, it, it, they, they take mm-hmm. away the ability for them to be a neighborhood street and make them into a very high-intensity piece of infrastructure versus a place where kids are playing, dogs are getting walked, and people are hanging out in their front yards. So, I mean, hopefully some of this, you know, infrastructure money comes into that. So, I mean, in, in the story that you shared that was really fantastic that I've um, – oh, here it is. Yeah, Ian Duncan. This was um, in, in Washpo, Washington Post. Um, when was it? April 1st. It wasn't uh, April Fool's story. It was a very real story. But this is the one we've been talking about. Um, a woman's call um, – a woman called for highways removal in a black neighborhood. The White House singled it out in his infrastructure plan. And this is the one about Claiborne um, Expressway in Treme. But, like, you know, Ian Duncan wrote this. Down, like, in it – like, and I'm wondering if this is a part of that, like, $80 billion or $100 billion or whatever for road stuff. You know, Biden's got $20 billion fund to, quote – reconnect neighborhoods cut off by old transportation projects. So that's, I mean, 20 billion, uh, that, that, that sounds like enough for a, a handful, maybe five, six, seven, eight projects, highway removal projects. If that's what they're thinking, I, I don't know, maybe, maybe more. It depends on who's ready for it, what we can do, but this is exciting. You know, that like in this proposal that there's um, this amount of money, and people at the highest level of doling out dollars down to states are actually thinking about this. I would love to see some of this money um, make its way down to uh, Kentucky or Indiana or Ohio, and hopefully it will. There was another piece. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Do you have something else? Oh, no. I, I was just agreeing with you and then was thinking about the, the railway stuff. <laughs> oh, the railway stuff. The railway stuff. Where that little shark up? The actual the railway stuff on that little chart I was looking at um, that had the amount and kind of the where where the dollars were going. So all the way down. So we had roads and bridges at one fifteen billion. Uh, man, so so much of the stuff I could I could talk more about. High speed broadband one hundred billion. School construction one hundred billion. Power grid, clean energy one hundred billion. Public transit eighty five billion. Railways eighty billion. And this was like the the talk of the Twitter uh, late last week when Amtrak, and, and I, I guess you know that Amtrak situation is based on uh, potential you know new federal funding. I don't know. I don't know. You know, like like exactly what Amtrak's thinking, where it's coming from, if how connected this is to, to Biden's statement and the idea of new federal funds for rail, national rail, to be dropped. But Amtrak dropped that map. And people lost it. What, what did you think about that map? I, I mean, I'm glad that Louisville was on the map, but I really think that it doesn't make any sense to me why from Louisville to Nashville there's not a connection. Because yeah. the the idea of being able to go from Chicago to Indianapolis to Louisville, and then there's just a big gap between Louisville <laughs> and Nashville. It's like if you could go from Chicago to Atlanta through louisville and nashville it just seems like why wouldn't you just put that in there especially since like you're talking about proposals and you know i I remember when obama 
talked about this stuff and i was like excited because i was like oh we're gonna have high speed rail all through <laughs> you know louisville's gonna be on that it didn't happen it didn't even like it seemed like it was gone as quickly as it showed up so i don't have a ton of hope that this is gonna necessarily happen while i'm alive but yeah the idea that it could i mean i would love i mean when i lived in southern illinois in carbondale you could take a train to Nat or to uh, New Orleans, or you could go up, which I did, up to Chicago, and it would take like six hours. It'd be about comparable to driving, but you could sit on a train and just hang out and with friends and stuff like that, and then just get off and take the L or whatever once you got up there. Yeah. And the idea of being able to do that is, I mean, having grown up in like the Philadelphia area. And being used to being on trains to get to different cities, I I miss it, and I feel like we need to invest in that. But. Big time, big time. So you know, back to that proposal word. This map, you know, we'll, we'll retweet it again on uh, underscore city state on Twitter if you'd like to. Uh, if you didn't see it and you'd like to check it out, this again, it's another proposal. Uh, so as I talk about this, understand that I'm very skeptical of the word proposal, but you look at, you know, these lines, they're color-coded, existing, actually planned for and funded, or coming, maybe. Um, and, and some of the coming maybe ones, you know, we're connecting Louisville to Indianapolis. So the bright side of that is that, you know, that would be us connecting to Indy, um, through Indy up to Chicago. That would be amazing. I would love that. And, and But that's just kind of all we got. It's like a little spur line from Indianapolis to Louisville. I, I, I guess one question I had is, like, does this permanently make us a satellite city of Indianapolis? Are we, like, are, are we Indianapolis's, like, little bud? You know, like, uh, that's kind of what, what this is making this look like for me. You know, but conspicuously on this map, uh, every other state east of the Mississippi has existing planned for or proposed lines just running all through it. And Kentucky is, like, the whole in the middle of what we have, what we're actually going to make, and what we hope to make. So I found that very interesting because if these are proposals, why not just why not just connect up Louisville to Nashville yeah, so you can get exactly. to Chicago to Atlanta? In, and in, I, in I started looking into that too because I was trying to figure out why they wouldn't do that, and I was like, well, maybe maybe there's these are other routes that existed before, and that's yeah. why they these connections. So I found a route that was called the Floridian Yeah, that last ran in 1979, I guess, but it used to connect Chicago to Miami yeah. through yeah. Louisville yeah. and Nashville. And, uh, I mean, could you imagine being like, I'm going to go on a vacation in Miami and I'm going to take the train. Like that would be too amazing. Hot. Too but hot do that. There. Uh, you could do it during the winter though. <laughs> <laughs> Or but, Chicago, I mean, though. I mean, to be able to just yeah. hop on a train and go up to Chicago and not have to deal with airlines and all of that kind of stuff, that would be – I would do it. If we're we, going to have to jump back on this subject yeah. next week because there's too much meat on the bone. And, and hopefully there's actually, you know, something done. But, again, I mean, these are proposals. And, like, why, why not just connect, you know, through Kentucky to Nashville? But, I mean, you were talking about that old line that used to go from Chicago down to Miami through Louisville and Nashville and the like – I mean, a, a big part of this is that, like, those, those, that railway infrastructure is completely owned by freight rail 
now and they they control it and people have told me as we've had rail discussions is that the the freight providers will not share those that space they they say that it's fully booked up and they don't have time and they don't want to see anybody else on their track and there's i guess a part of that a whole another question about whether or not new rail or amtrak would run on the same track but i mean i'm assuming it would this isn't like a new kind of high-speed rail or anything this is basically an extension of our existing kind of rail so i mean maybe kentucky's vacant like this because they know that they can't get the space away from the big rail freight people i don't know we should touch on this in the beginning of the next show because we we barely got to get into it uh, does that sound good to you yeah yeah let's uh look into like more of what why we don't have that so we have gone through another whole hour here on underscore city state on Twitter. Um, but we, we enjoy talking with you. Please tune in again next week. You've been listening to WXOXLP Louisville. Stay tuned right here for Evan and the vibe. Peace. Later, Patrick. Yeah. Hey. Oh, Patrick, Patrick Kirby was here. Oh, Patrick Kirby.